You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation. And with me, my co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. I think you could shorten that introduction because we have a lot to cover today. We have so much to cover. I mean, we've had, you know, there's been some slow times, but this week has just been a bonanza of driving law extravaganza. Yeah, so let's jump right into it. Okay, uh, well, first things first, I think the biggest news that everybody needs to know about is Bill 4. The Provincial Bill for the Firearm Violence Prevention Act. And I know what you're thinking. Why are we talking about firearms legislation in BC when this is the Driving Law Podcast? And that is because a significant portion of this legislation, maybe most of this legislation, is going to relate to driving. Uh, to driving. And uh, in particular, seizing vehicles and searching vehicles when the police have... Uh, I don't know, a suspicion or something slightly more than that, that there might be a prohibited um, firearm, but not necessarily a firearm, an imitation firearm or an airsoft gun or a pellet gun or anything like that. So this legislation was introduced by uh, Mike Farnworth, who's our public safety solicitor general, uh, and uh, it's just first reading now, but um, it's fascinating, Kyle. It's good reading. I spent about half an hour looking at it today. Part five, motor vehicle impoundment. So what gives them the power to impound your vehicle in this bill? Assuming this law passes. <laughs> what gives them the power? Yeah. Uh, just what? basically a police officer believes that you've, that you've committed one of the enumerated offenses, uh, including the offenses in this bill or other offenses. So there's huge crossover. This is actually quite fascinating because it ties back to other driving law. This is huge crossover in this thing to, uh, to criminal code offenses. And 10 years ago, you would not have seen legislation like this. It's only as a result of the Civia Goodwin line of decisions that went to the Supreme Court of Canada that said, we're not uh, using these same uh, well-defined boxes when it comes to what is criminal and what is uh, what is within the legislative authority of the provincial government. Yep. And so a lot of this is like searches, searches with warrants, searches without warrants. If the police officer believes something may have happened, you may have, may have committed an offense. And then vehicle seizures and the legislation sets no time limit on how long the vehicle is impounded, but they are impoundments and that will be later specified in regulation. Which means they can make it longer if they're still finding lots of guns in cars that they've unlawfully searched. So this really, like the the, the scenario here that they've sort of planned for is your child is 17 years old, your child has a airsoft gun in the car or a pellet gun or an imitation firearm, they can impound your car and they, they, they may, the police may impound your car in those circumstances and it almost sounds like it's gone. And the obligation is then on the person who is driving to notify the owner. Interestingly, even in circumstances where the car is stolen, 
the obligation is on the driver to notify the owner. Oh, I stole your car. Yeah. Uh, it's section 40 of, uh, of bill four. Uh, duty of, uh, sorry, uh, duty of operator to notify owner of impoundment. If the person who was operating or in possession of a motor vehicle at the time of its impoundment is not the owner, the person must take reasonable steps to promptly notify the owner of the impoundment. So even if you stole it, even if you have no idea who belo- it belongs to, you're probably legally obligated to like take out an ad in the newspaper or something to notify the owner while well, the newspapers are irrelevant now, but I don't know. I'll take it out an ad on Craigslist. Yeah. Run a Google, run a Google ad. <laughs> <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, I mean, some parts of the legislation, you can see exactly what they're trying to get at. And some parts are, are you wonder why they would do that? This part, I don't understand, but I mean, I suppose it's you're 17 and you go home and you tell your mom, yeah, mom, the Lexus is gone. Uh, you know, because uh, uh, one of my buddies had an airsoft gun. Well, it's also, you know, impoundment doesn't just mean what we ordinarily understand it to mean in the legislation anymore. It doesn't mean you tow your card to a tow lot. No, um, it's... It's they, broader. They can actually... So the, 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 there's the liability created by the, the tow and the impound. And the towing company, uh, it appears under this legislation, that I don't know what the time limit is, I think that's probably gonna come with regulations, but it's gonna be able to sell your vehicle um, and, um, uh, and then recover the, uh, the, the amount of the cost of the towing and storage. Well, that's, that's not what I was referring to. I was referring to the fact that impoundment is not just defined as taking it to an impound lot. It also includes immobilizing the vehicle. So if you put like one of those wheel locks on it oh, and leave it at the side of the road, oh, I didn't see that. and then you're obligated, if you immobilize the vehicle, so if the police officer puts a boot on the car, that's an impoundment under this legislation. And then the police officer who puts the boot on the car becomes a person who has obligations. They're a person who has custody of the motor vehicle. And they have the obligation to, um, uh, uh, to return property to the uh, owner of the motor vehicle if the owner requests it. They have the right to sell the vehicle. It doesn't just belong to the tow yard anymore. Yeah, I, I think it's just, I mean, the reality is I think this is going to be towed um, and it's going to end up a tow yard issue. But uh, theoretically, the police, if they've got their own impound lot, could turn this into a real moneymaker because they could be oh, towing... Yeah. Uh, and keeping the vehicles, especially in like private uh, 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 cities that have their own police force, like Nelson, get your own tow lot, well, yeah. uh, tow these vehicles, impound them. And the only review process that I can find in here, I mean, of course, there's always a review process going to BC Supreme Court, as we've learned, uh, especially with this line of cases recently with respect to ICBC and the Civil Resolution Tribunal. But the only other review process here is the police officer changes their mind. Yeah, you can you can ask the police officer to change their mind if the vehicle was stolen. So you can confess to stealing the vehicle to get the vehicle back to the lawful owner. Yeah, well, it's it's it actually you, it, it doesn't say that you can ask the police officer. It just says the police officer, you know, basically changes their mind. Presumably, you have to ask the police officer for that right because otherwise, if you don't, uh, then you're you're not able to you know you're not able to exercise that because how necessarily is a police officer going to know it's stolen if that report hasn't been made 
you know, the the 17-year-old kid who takes his airsoft pistol in the middle of the night while mom's asleep and takes mom's vehicle. That's technically a stolen motor vehicle. Mom's not going to phone the police on the kid, probably. I think the review provision is... Uh, is got two different steps. It's either the police officer comes to the conclusion that it's not, they're not, the offense wasn't committed, whatever that happens to be. Or they, or they just basically change their mind and, yeah. and decide that it's, it's not going to go ahead. You know, I think that there will be constitutional issues with the lack of an ability to challenge the seizure of the vehicle. We, I mean, we saw that, the, you go back to Civia, you were mm. mentioning Civia, and you said, you know, we, we saw the sort of expansion of the way that criminal law and, and provincial areas of legislative authority have been interpreted. Civia found the first version of the IRP scheme unconstitutional because there was no reviewability of the search. Well, here there's no reviewability of the seizure. Search and seizure are the same thing. The, review, the reviewability that exists appears to be the police officer's opinion. Um, and it's an opinion, you know, it doesn't even say that it has to be, it's not even clear that it has to be an objectively held reasonable opinion. So there's an issue there, but of course they can write that into regulation too, but it's, yeah, it's not in the legislation and they're going to have a problem with that. And it really just seems like the, the goal here is to make it easier to do a civil forfeiture. Um, and instead of the government getting the money, the tow yard or the, imp whoever impounds it gets to basically deal with the vehicle. And, and maybe sell off the vehicle uh, in these circumstances, even though it's a third party's vehicle. Now, here's something that I find so disturbing about this legislation. This legislation allows the government to punish innocent people. Well, yeah, but I, I, what I keep thinking, I want to get to that, the innocent people part. But think about rental cars for a minute. What about them? There's no obligation here for the rental car company to try and get their rental car back. So? So they could just, rental car company might charge you for the entire cost of the car on your credit card. Yeah. And that's usually part of the contract. Well, no, yeah, I guess. But so they, you know, you're driving along, you don't know that your, your uh, 17 year old takes the rental car out. You've got your rental car from ICBC because your car's in the shop. The 17 year old is insured to drive your car. The 17 year old uses the a rental car and has an airsoft gun in there the police impound the vehicle mm -hmm. and now national rental car is looking at it going oh okay well a $46,000 Ford um, we're, we're just gonna put it on your credit card the $46,000 who has a $46,000 limit or room on their credit card though well I do well must be nice <laughs> I don't have any 17 year old kids uh, yet the uh, will yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway so there's that but yeah punishing innocent people yeah so the legislation allows the government to refuse to issue you a license plate, insurance, or a driver's license if you are the owner of a motor vehicle that's been impounded under this legislation. If you, if you have a debt. Yeah, if you have a debt. If you have a debt. So you have a... Um, Somebody stole your car. Well, here, let's back up. You have a $600 car. Yeah. Okay, you've the got Chevy a... Chevy Cavalier. You've got a Chevy Cavalier. It shouldn't be on the road to start with. Um, somebody steals your Chevy Cavalier and has an airsoft gun um, in the vehicle and the police pull it over and impound it because there's an airsoft gun. The towing yard holds it. The towing yard eventually racks up $2,200 worth of towing and storage debt. 
The towing yard sells your $600 Chevy Cavalier for $100 because there's very little motivation for them to try and get $600. Scrap and metal. now you're into a couple thousand dollars worth of debt and your driver's license is canceled. And you weren't <laughs> even driving it. Or you gave it to somebody and you had no idea they were going to stick a gun in the car. It's easy to steal a Chevy Cavalier probably well, too. Yeah. I'm sure you can start. I could probably steal could a probably Chevy start, Cavalier. probably start with a screwdriver. Um, I start so, it with my mind. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, but yeah, that's insane. Like you can have nothing to do with the fact that somebody used your car to transport a gun and lose your car, your license, and your ability to purchase insurance all in one fell swoop. Yeah. So there's some very interesting things in here and there's going to be some interesting challenges, but of course we have to get those files and I don't think there's going to be that many. And I think probably the ones that where it does happen, um, it's going to be the police pulling over kids they know are driving around with a handgun. And, you know, I am sorry to say that I did recommend that they come up with something like this a while back, you'll recall. I said that they, you know, right as it stands, the police do a lot of no case seizures. So they pull people over. Um, they do an unlawful search of the vehicle. They suspect there's a gun in. Mm -hmm. They find the gun. They seize the gun. But because it was an unlawful search, nobody is ever charged. And I commented on a few radio shows and things like that, that they could go further, that they could do something else, that they could come up with some sort of um, provincial charge that could, could withstand the unlawful search. But Paul... And they did something... <laughs> They, they didn't do that. They created a power to conduct an unlawful search. Yeah, that's crazy. So section 59 of the bill says that they can do a search and seizure without a warrant if they believe that an offense under the act has occurred or is occurring. As in, like, something happened to the... You had a gun in your car in the past... Somebody came into the police station and said, yeah, I was riding with my friend, like, Trey, and then he showed me, like, this really cool handgun, man, and, like, it had this clip that could hold, like, 42 bullets in it, and it was, like, so cool. Or it was an airsoft gun, and we're 17. Ha, ha, ha. The police hear this. They can now find the car, pull the car over, search the car without a warrant. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, limits in there, but not much. Yeah, the uh -huh. limit is that they have to have um, a belief that it's likely that it'll provide evidence of an offense and that delay would result in loss or destruction of evidence or a danger to human life or safety. So well, if there's a vehicle, it's there every time because yeah. they can always argue that it's just going to get taken out of the vehicle down the road. Well, so they can basically yeah. pull over any vehicle and search it for a airsoft gun here uh, without a warrant. And we've seen the way that police view their ability to execute search warrants with dynamic entry is applying in every case. Like I had a case where the client had like a, an assault conviction from like 15 years before. And the police were like, we needed a dynamic entry because he had a prior assault conviction. But, but that, that's not even the same. The, what? Well, we also see lots of police officers when they're conducting immediate roadside prohibition investigations, they have the person blow, the person blows a fail. They know they're going to issue them an immediate roadside prohibition, but because it was a demand pursuant to the criminal code, they also have the, uh, the discretion to detain the person um, for further investigation and search the surrounding area. Um, even though they know they're not going to 
arrest the person, even though they know they're going to uh, issue them an immediate roadside prohibition, they then go searching all through their car. Yep. Um, and this is a, a real problem with the IRP scheme that I only really turned my mind to in the last year because I'm seeing so many police officers searching people's vehicles and all of these clients are telling me, yeah, I was lodged in the back of a police car. They told me before they let me do my second breath sample, they're going to search my car. Yeah. Well, and also those searches, what's the remedy under the IRP scheme? There's no if you remedy, go no. ahead and search them, what's the remedy in this legislation? If police officers unlawfully stop you, unlawfully search your car without having the requisite grounds that allow them to do it without a warrant, find a gun, impound your car because you had of one of the prohibited guns or were committing one of the offenses that they only discovered as a result of their unlawful activity, and then you're on the hook for all of this money. What's your remedy under the legislation? Does your impound get canceled? Do you get your car back? No money out of your pocket? I don't see any remedies nope. in the legislation. So we're, we're going to have to talk about this legislation again um, and more in depth because I only read it for like half an hour today and there's so much in there and it's hard to think about how it's going to play out and then, of course, it's, you know, it's everything is subject to the regulations that they write with it. So lots of things are prescribed, the prescribed period, but it doesn't talk about any period. It looks like just a forever impound. So if the intention is, I mean, if the intention is to discourage people, um, then that's one thing. It looks like it's a civil forfeiture in another form. Paul, yeah. about a year and a half ago, you and I talked on this podcast about a case called West. Yes, we did. Nobody that, remembers this, I'm sure. <laughs> that is the case where if you turned around and walked out, yes, it's just a deemed conviction. Yes, where the court can't just impose a driving prohibition because they want to if you didn't show up to court. So basically in BC, uh, if you're listening from outside, well, even if you're in BC, if you file your ticket in dispute and you don't go to court, there's a deemed conviction. You're just convicted. But that's it. It's the fine that's stipulated on the decision. If you don't go to court, you can't have a driving prohibition ordered or something like that as part of the sentence. And the West decision, it said, well, it said that if you go to court and you plead guilty. It's no different. It's no different because you could have just not even walked into the courtroom or you could have walked out of the courtroom mid-trial and it would have just been a deemed conviction. So how can you punish somebody worse when they plead guilty on the day of court in those circumstances when if they had gone to the court registry and paid it they wouldn't have they anything would not have anything so fast forward to after west you and i had thought this will end this practice of police officers going i'm going to seek a driving prohibition yeah and, and to some extent it did i don't think i've had police officers saying that anymore and when they have i've explained well you yeah. have a bit of a problem here because of the west decision nobody ever has to me that's for sure yeah the <laughs> um the uh i think i was only once and it was only days afterwards so the word must have got out um and most of the time you know the uh even if you have a trial there's no there's no not a justification for a driving prohibition being ordered um even if the police officer is going to ask for it most of the time the Judicial justice is going to look at it and say, look, this is a, the superintendent of motor vehicles has this job to review people's driving records and I'll leave it to them. So here's what happened in Mr. Payman's case. And it was kind of a little, it, it's a really new, this disturbing. This is a new decision that just it's, came out. Yes. New decision. Payman. It's a P-A-Y-M-A-N uh, 2021 BCSC 406. Released on the 9th, I think, of March. Yes. So he got a cell phone ticket and he disputed it. He went to court. Um, 
and he pleaded guilty. The officer said, I'm going to seek a driving prohibition. And so he adjourned his sentencing to give him time to respond to this and to research it. And because of the West decision and because presumably there was some indication that the court was going to entertain the imposition of a driving prohibition, um, Mr. Payman decided to do exactly what West said you could do to avoid the driving prohibition, go to the registry and pay the ticket. Yeah, so, so in, he just paid it and that yeah. should have been the end of it. Yeah. Um, but there was a date set for sentencing and yes. it was during the COVID period. The judicial justice ordered, he heard that Mr. Payman had paid the ticket and avoided the sentencing in which the officer was going to seek the driving prohibition, ordered the sentencing to proceed on December 16th, 2020, it was like nine days after it was supposed to be on the court list, and then ordered a 90-day driving prohibition, no notice to Mr. Payman, no uh, attendance by him or submissions from him. Kind of not good juju. Yeah, it's pretty over the top. I mean, I understand that, like, don't... You, you, it always worries me when I see anybody who's too invested. Um, and it always sometimes feels like the... the court is a little too invested in those circumstances where the court goes to, I want control over I this. I want to get this guy in here and I want to punish him and I want to, uh, it doesn't get him in and then punishes him. So this is a Supreme Court decision on, yes. for this fellow. So there was an appeal, and it obviously, was an appeal. of and it, that. It looks like the, the Crown conceded the appeal. Quite properly. Um, um, the, what was interesting though, is the court was still permitted to sentence him, even though he'd gone and paid the fine. The court retained the jurisdiction to sentence him, which I think is a little odd because the BC Supreme Court says, you know, the court's powers to sentence him didn't end. He'd entered the guilty plea and the court still could impose sentence. They weren't functus once he paid the ticket, but the power to sentence him was limited to the power to impose the fine on the face of the ticket and nothing more. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like fancy talk, but so is functus. <laughs> so, I mean, functus is like the the court no longer has jurisdiction. It's the the matter is complete, and that level of court can no longer speak to it. And here in this case, it's uh, it wasn't. You know, it was still open to be sentenced, but the sentence was limited to the sentence that was spelled out in West, which is the guy pled guilty you can only sentence him to the ticketed amount. Um, so it was, uh, I mean, more than anything here, it's a sort of a strange observation into what goes on behind the scenes that the judicial justice was trying to figure out what happened with Mr. Payman's matter when Mr. Payman went and did the payment. Yeah, Mr. Payman was gonna go, hey, I'm gonna pay, man. <laughs> Sorry, I've been waiting to make that joke. <laughs> it's not a very good joke. No, I know. But, you know, people come to this podcast not for the law. They come for the jokes. Well, there you go. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, it was. A, it's a decision that states again more clearly what it stated in West, thankfully. And that yes. is that... Even under Section 98 of the Motor Vehicle Act, the court cannot impose a driving prohibition yeah. on a guilty plea. Now, interestingly, neither of these cases address... A post-trial conviction. 
No, I know. Well, they, they sort of do. It, it implies that if you dispute it and run a trial that yes, you could be uh, get a driving prohibition, but I think it's a strong recommendation that they the court not do that in traffic the court. Court in minor, I believe, was a a case where it went to trial, and in payment they quote from minor, the old old BC uh, BC Supreme Court decision that says you can't go above the face of the ticket. Yeah, that's my understanding too. But here in payment, it doesn't seem to spell that out. They do, they don't want to commit to that. So <laughs> who would? So I th I still think that that's probably the case. I would imagine you know there may be circumstances where there might be um, some other punishment beyond the fine, uh, but I I can't think of one just off the top of my head. It just seems to me that most of the time people are entitled to have their trial. And just because you have a trial, it shouldn't be worse punishment than if you pled guilty. You're entitled to have a trial. You have a right to have a trial in this country. You have a right to have a trial and test the evidence on your traffic ticket. And just because you had a trial doesn't mean you should end up with some punishment that is worse than you would have had you pled guilty. There may be mitigating factors of saving the court from having to have a trial and saving the court from having witnesses coming and you know, there might be some benefit to that, but for the most part, it shouldn't be a circumstance where, you know, you're, you're getting you're getting treated worse as a result of the fact that you demanded to have something that is your right. Yes. Now, we also had a uh, mail-in driving law topic from one of our dedicated listeners, uh, Court Report Canada. Thank you, listeners. Yes, thank you, listeners. We like you. And you can find them at courtreportcanada.substack.com. It's basically just summaries of decisions where people are in trouble for things related to courts. Lawyers getting in troubles, experts getting in trouble, famous people getting in trouble. It's it's, uh, so it's a little it's, so smattering it, of strange so things. It's designed <laughs> to make the justice system not look good. But, I don't know. Yeah. No, because it's designed, I think, to make people in the justice system maybe not look good, but... Well, I should say that I, I retweet most uh, cases that I see where police officers get drunk driving charges, and it's not because I'm trying to make police officers look bad or the justice system look bad. I'm doing it because I want to emphasize the fact that we should not be too harsh on the moral aspect or the morality aspect of it. Even police officers, most of whom are wonderful people, um, can screw that one up. So Court Report Canada alerted me to this decision from the BC Supreme Court about one of ICBC's experts and I thought it was worthwhile just touching on it because we've talked a lot, maybe not you and I, but Eric McGracken, who was on last Eric, week, yeah. um, has talked a lot about uh, the treatment of ICBC experts in court um, and also the way that ICBC experts maybe can be problematic sometimes. It's funny, Not all the time. We hire experts, you and I hire experts. Oh, yeah. And one of the things I find with the experts we hire is that they are every each everyone that we've ever hired has been invariably balanced. Yep. Nobody's been like on you know lots of times our fairly good Theories have been, no, the expert, no, I'm not going there. I don't think you can substantiate that. No, no, nobody's ever been. I would never say any of them are like even that defense friendly. But some of the ICBC experts have been noted to be 
particularly ICBC friendly. So this is a case involving an orthopedic surgeon hired by ICBC in a case called Yeomans, Y-E-O-M-A-N-S. It's a decision of Justice Kent in the BC Supreme Court. And one thing if you read a lot of BC Supreme Court judgments you will find is that Justice Kent is not afraid to let his views be known about anything. Call me cynical once. He's not, yeah, but he's not sarcastic or snarky. Oh, well, when you're in front of him. Maybe, but he's not his decisions. He's made lawyers I know cry. Well, I mean. Yeah. That may be, but I, 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 from what you tell me, he's still really down the middle. He pushes, but his judgments are always down, well, down the middle, but he'll call it out if he thinks it's wrong. So, um, in this case, uh, this orthopedic surgeon wanted to testify, and what Justice Kent said was, he is clearly a competent orthopedic surgeon with vast experience. Ordinarily, such an individual would be qualified to provide the court with expert opinion on the diagnosis and treatment of injuries to the knee. However, it is a precondition to the admissibility of expert opinion evidence that the expert be willing and able to provide evidence that is truly impartial, independent, and unbiased. Regretfully, I am obliged to conclude that the expert falls short fails or fails to, to meet. meet the necessary standard. That's pretty, like, that's that's potentially career-ending for an expert, that type of... Well, it's that part of a career-ending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're no longer testifying... Uh, you have a BC Supreme Court yeah. judge to say that. It's hard to get past that. But, I mean, the problem with that is that you can... And he's previously been found to lack credibility. That, that's the problem. I mean, if it's one judge comes off and says something like that, who knows what that judge is. You know, sometimes a judge has previous career experience that's influencing their opinion, unfortunately. But he, he This expert apparently <clears throat> expressed scorn for the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia, which, you know hurts me. I'm on the board. I'm a member. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, he claimed that the TLABC had singled him out and prepared a cheat sheet for cross-examination of him. Well, that's nothing wrong that's, with having a yeah. cross-examination you information know, being it, passed around. It, you know what? There's lots of officers that are singled out as being officers who are problems and for whom defense lawyers share tips. Sure. I mean, we've got a, we, we, we don't keep a list of officers but we do keep a informal list of officers who we know are tend to not be um hmm, officers we trust generally well the worst part the part that'll like tick you off the most is that even though multiple judges have found this expert to be biased and not capable of giving an expert opinion icbc has paid him 3.4 million dollars since 2010 in the last decade 3.4 million dollars half a million annually in 2013 um and uh that's a lot of money dropped off to 41,000 so obviously he was he was connected (laughs) to some files and still three probably shouldn't have been for icbc to complain that defense are producing too many experts and blah 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 3.4 million dollars of taxpayer money went to pay this guy who's been rejected repeatedly by the court as being biased. So from 2010 uh, is when they the judge is looking at this 3.4 million, peaking at $500,000 in 2013. So divide that up and then it's sort of tailed off in the last few years. So you could say maybe 2017. So basically uh, the big money was between 2010 
2017. So about seven years, you know, $3 million. Wow. Pretty good for an expert. I wonder what your overhead is. Yeah, but... I'd like to be an expert. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. Quit criminal law and become an orthopedic expert. I guess all of those things were potential, were questions for the, uh, you know, qualifying the expert. So he wasn't qualified in the end because he was, had a clear bias. Yep. So says the judge. Um, speaking of ICBC getting smacked down, uh, Eric McGracken just published something on his blog late last night that also was a smackdown of the Civil Resolution Tribunal for accepting ICBC's lawyers, or not lawyers, adjuster, I guess, ICBC's yeah. argument that, um, about, uh, liability. So this individual, Mr. Devendra, uh, sues ICBC because he was found partially at fault um, for a motor vehicle accident. And he wanted ICBC to investigate the accident properly. He said they didn't investigate properly, and so they assigned the blame on me, and my deductible, and uh, went, I had to pay the deductible, and my insurance premiums went up. And you can sue, and you can say, I want that money back. Yeah. And the Civil Resolution Tribunal can grant those orders. It's one of the things they still can do that's within their jurisdiction. And the tribunal said, no, there's a BC Supreme Court action involving this and liability is gonna be determined there. So it doesn't matter whether they were wrong now because when the BC Supreme Court action's resolved, that'll fix everything for him. Okay. Except for the fact that ICBC had repeatedly stated in its submissions to the CRT that liability was not an issue in the Supreme Court action. There was going to be no determination oh, of so liability. so they were seeking a determination of liability of the CRT. Yes. Liability was not going to be an issue in the Supreme Court action. Because yes. it was, okay, I can understand how that would be. I can come up with some ways of imagining how that would take place. And then the CRT... Sidesteps its sidesteps obligation. It and says it's going to be... It's going to be dealt with in Supreme Court, so we don't need to deal with it. We don't need to do it. Duplicating the proceedings. <laughs> so here's what the court says. Madam Justice Murray says about the CRT here. Given the above, I find that the tribunal exercised its discretion arbitrarily and on the basis of predominantly irrelevant and or non-existent facts. Particularly, it acted with a seemingly honest but mistaken understanding of civil procedure and insurance legislation in concluding that Mr. Devendra's liability as it relates to his dispute against ICBC would be determined in the BCSC action. The tribunal had no evidence before it to reach that conclusion. At the very least, the tribunal could have made inquiries into whether the action would impact ICBC's determination of liability. This is insane. Like, it's so rare that you get such strict language used by a superior court about the actions of a tribunal. Yeah, um, it's fascinating because we see tribunals making what we would say are factual findings that are not supported or should would not follow and very often the judge might be commenting well i would not have necessarily come to this conclusion but you know can i say that the path to the decision is wrong mm -hmm. um and um and so it seems like their hands are tied so often and this was a circumstance obviously where you know the bc supreme court concluded that their hands were not tied uh and that <laughs> <laughs> as a result of the fact that there was it was it was just clearly wrong on that position that ICBC had taken from the beginning. Yep. 
but that's going to happen. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like using the CRT to be a, uh, to be a master to determine on, make a determination on pleadings and they make a mistake there and, you know, I don't know. Easily overturned. Yeah. But good, you know, good decision. Um, recognizing the very substantial difference between the role that certain determinations play in Supreme Court and the role that those determinations play at the CRT. But it brings something to mind, Kyla, that I told you back when you first started practicing that I've told so many young lawyers who've started with me, and that is appellate work is where it's at because we are going to see CRT decisions and more and more decisions from the Firearm Violence Prevention Act and things like that where we have to run to BC Supreme Court and try and persuade a judge that an adjudicator's um, even though they made these findings of fact, that there's it's still wrong. I mean, um, and it's going to yes be more and, no, and more of that. It's but there's no fun in an appellate work because you don't get to cross-examine. No, it's a terrible thing. But this is where <laughs> we're going with the tribunalization of the law, right? You know, look at all this stuff in the Firearms Prevention Act. None of that stuff has any possibility to cross-examine anybody. It's just like you're assuming the police are correct. Um, and your best, you know, your only option really is to go to BC Supreme Court and try and persuade the judge that the that the uh, police officer wasn't correct. Speaking of uh, no fun in appellate work because there's no <clears throat> cross examination. Paul, do you know what time it is? It's time for the ridiculous driver of the week. <laughs> Ridiculous driver of the week. That's good. You have a good one this week. It's not a ridiculous driver so much as it's a ridiculous judge. And it's very rare in your career as a lawyer that you could maybe say that and get Um, away with it. Yeah, I don't know that it's a... Well, yeah, he's the ridiculous driver of the week this week just because it's such a uh, damn stupid thing, frankly. Yeah, it's a damn stupid thing, but the implications actually are far beyond that. So, Kyla, give us the very brief summary. So in the middle of an impaired driving trial in Ontario, a judge. um, This was a Zoom trial. Yeah, it was a Zoom trial. All the trials in Ontario right now are being held over Zoom. So that's why Uh, a judge took a short break. There was a short break. And before he actually left the meeting. He did the thing that we all fear that we're going to do. Something stupid. Well, yeah. I mean, it was particularly stupid, actually. But it's not just the stupid part that bothers me. Anyway, go ahead. No. uh, So the judge said, um, essentially, a, a rude comment about defense counsel that included the F word. Something about, I've got this fucking lawyer. Yeah, I've got... Yeah, so I've and got so. fucking... So-and-so as a yeah. lawyer, yeah. And a very, very, very good lawyer. Sharif Boda is excellent, excellent. I know. Um, and conducting a trial. And uh, the lawyer came back and made a mistrial application uh, on that basis. And the judge, you know, quite, quite rightly <laughs> granted the mistrial application. But the, you know, there's there's a lot to this. There's actually quite a bit to unpack. And I'm I'm sort of only halfway through, but... No, on the one hand, there's the, you know, the gotcha moment of the judge failing to mute on Zoom. Um, but there's a bigger, uh, such a bigger concern to me. And that is that a judge is thinking that way. Yeah. 
that a judge is actually that, you know, I, I stand in front of judges all the time and I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know whether or not they're, they're making like those sorts of, of really unfair, un Regarded. I assume that they groan when there's a trial with me because they know it's going to be long. It, I'm going to be thorough. I'm going to make a lot of arguments. I know, I'm not going to give a lot of ground. You are supposed to be unbiased and you're supposed to approach it all the way through and listen to the evidence without any bias against the defense lawyer, against the, you know, there's some defense lawyers I could barely stand listening to, I suppose. Um, I know, I, you know, I, they're lawyers and they do their job for their client, but... Um, but regardless, like you don't even allow yourself, if you're a judge in my mind, you don't even allow yourself to think that way. Yeah. And I'm capable of not allowing myself to think that way. And I mean, it's one thing to, you know, it, it, it's that much worse, I suppose, in a sense that the judge allowed himself to think that way and said it. But no, maybe not. Maybe this is just it's exposing better. something. It's better. That he said it. Because then the, you know. Yeah, now we know. Um, and I suppose this happens, but like, do they, when they go to judges' conferences, do they, or when they have coffee in the back, are they discussing oh, yeah, things like this? Are they talking, talking about, about like that? Probably That's, some of them. I think it's just absolutely disappointing. You know, when we are arguing a bias, we have to have such overwhelming evidence that it is you would never allege it you can't allege it i don't think there's a circumstance where i've i alleged felt, it once well and the judge agreed yeah that was a very unique circumstance. very unique circumstance um but it, it's just it's the perception the public perception of bias and you have to have a lot to to get to that point yeah and i think sometimes when i see judges make make snarky comments and decisions and make uh, sarcastic comments. Um, you know, I think that should be enough a lot of the time in my know. mind. I don't mind being called cynical. I wear it like a badge of that's honor. Not, that's not, a, <laughs> that's not neither snarky or, or you know. but Or inaccurate. <laughs> but, um, you know, I have seen judges, heard judges make comments that, that I find very uh, concerning and i and i you know on the one hand you could say it's training but on the other hand it could just be who the person is and if that's the way they think i honestly if i was a judge and i said something like that that caused a mistrial and it would i would probably think that maybe i shouldn't be a judge i'm, I'm not saying that there should be some somebody should be removed in those circumstances but i myself in those circumstances would probably say to myself you know what if this is the way I'm approaching things, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. Yeah. Or maybe I will recuse myself from cases involving lawyers that make me feel this way. Yeah. Uh, there was a judge out in, um, in Surrey, and every once in a while he'd get a little bit frustrated at counsel, and there was times that he, he said, I'm not going to hear this, we're not going to start this, I'm not going to cause a mistrial because I'm already feel that I cannot approach this with the with the um, level of fairness that is necessary because of what's gone on here today. And you guys are going to have to start with a different judge. Um, and I used to, you know, wonder if that was uh, a way of getting out of conducting a trial. But actually, when I think back now, I think it was probably a fairer way of dealing with it 
to ensure that the judge yeah, is not, not not just the perception of bias, but is internally saying to themselves that thing that they should be saying and that they probably yeah. persuaded themselves when they first became a judge, and that is... Am I in the right mindset to be impartial today? Exactly. So, I mean, as a defense lawyer, you ask yourself that too, you know, before you go into court and say, Your Honor, I'm ready to proceed. You say, am I in the right mindset to be running this trial today? Am I prepared mentally for the exhaustion and the work? And the judges have to do the same thing. They're just like us. I would, I would pull the plug if I felt that I wasn't, uh, or if I felt that I wasn't up to, you know, doing the job that I needed to do. I would go in and say, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I've got something that's been weighing on me so heavily that I can't do a good job for my client today and we need to adjourn it. Um, I have seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen uh, lawyers do that. and uh, I've you know, seen I lawyers think... adjourn trials because they had a cold. And they said, I'm not on my 100%. I'm not going to do the trial. I haven't, I'm not feeling well. Yeah. And I think that's And that was pre, pre-COVID. I think that's appropriate. Um, but yeah, this, um, you know, there, there, there's things that I've watched judges push back when they've got in trouble. And I've just thought to myself, you know, if it, if it were me in those circumstances, I, I would think that if I made a comment like that, uh, whatever it happened to be, I don't think that I would feel comfortable continuing in that role, serving the public, um, knowing that anybody who's coming into my courtroom um, has would have this question about me, mm-hmm. and uh, knowing that I made that comment and they legitimately have that question about me, and I'm, you know, I, I, I don't, I would not feel comfortable myself doing it, not just because of the public perception. Okay. Well, there you go. On that note... I don't want to end just yet, Kyla, because I just received my copy of Cross-Examination, The Pinpoint Method by Kyla Lee, and uh, I'm very happy to have got my book, and I see that you've now signed it for me. Uh, I was talking to some police officers, and um, and after looking at the book, I would think that it probably would be useful for the police. So if you're... Well, no, because then they'll know all my tricks. Buy my book to learn my tricks. Yeah, don't buy buy the book to learn my tricks. Um, uh, I'll still outsmart you. But cross-examining people in traffic court, uh, it would probably be quite useful for that, I think. Although we could write a different book for that, and maybe we will. We promised once to somebody to do something, and we never did. And we better send him one. I know. That's someone we could Mm -hmm. actually send a book to. Yep. Okay. That was with respect to uh, stop sign tickets. Yep. Well, that's our podcast. If you have any questions for us that relate to driving law or anything you've heard on the podcast today, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.